This week, we discuss the never-ending saga of cannabis nomenclature, what entheogens are, and how to become a better butt tender. Coming up next on Critical Grass. Get it, man, and get with the countdown. Shake this square world and blast off for Kicksville. Critical Grass. It's stimulating, mind-expanding, safer to use than alcohol. It's the in thing, the hula hoop of the jet generation, and as much a part of growing up as smoking corn silk behind the back fence. Critical Grass. He's looked at both the pros and cons of blowing pot. He's not convinced that grass is all that harmful, but there is room for a lot of doubt. Why don't we wait and see? There's a lot of testing to be done before we'll know all the facts. Critical grass. My name is Emma. I am originally from New York, based in Portland, Oregon, and I am a cannabis educator and industry consultant. That little synthwave groove was brought to you by Remote Horsts with a track titled Binary Dream. No, we're not going to emit a long sequence of ones and zeros for the duration of this episode. Instead, we'll be talking about the binary nomenclature that has dominated the cannabis space until now. Of course, before that, we'd like to present this week's guest, Emma Chasen. Emma is a cannabis educator and an industry consultant at Eminent Consulting, a firm based in Portland, Oregon. Emma has a mission to educate people on the science behind cannabis so that they may take charge of their own healing. After graduating from Brown University in 2014 with a degree in medicinal plant research, Emma went on to coordinate clinical oncology trials with the Brown University Oncology Research Group. She ended up making her way across the country to the cannabis-friendlier pastures of Portland, where she found work at Pharma, the popular Portland dispensary that takes a more scientific approach to our favorite plant. Now full-time at Eminent Consulting, she and her team offer educational training and craft industry development for industry professionals and businesses. So she's done her clinical homework and now puts that knowledge into practice for the benefit of cannabis enthusiasts like you and me. So what made Emma get into cannabis in the first place, and why did she ditch academia for Portlandia? I actually grew up with a rather puritanical mindset. Uh, during high school, I did not smoke cannabis. I didn't drink alcohol. I was just completely driven, and I definitely was steeped in that negative stigma that if you did consume cannabis or any other drugs, then you were just kind of a deadbeat. But I went to Brown University and quickly had my eyes opened that 
the most intelligent people that I was around were smoking cannabis, just like brilliant humans who are really engaging in these entheogenic substances and plant medicine. Um, and that definitely helped to reframe my relationship and understanding of cannabis while shedding that stigma. And while that was happening socially, I also was taking a freshman seminar at Brown called Botanical Roots of Modern Medicine, where I was able to really study the uh, scientific evidence around plant medicine and their properties um, when used mostly in an indigenous uh, healing context. And that coupled with the socialization of, oh, brilliant people do consume cannabis was the catalyst for me to be able to, to realize that I did enjoy plant medicine, that I actually resonated with it much more than I did the kind of allopathic Western medicine model, and that it was also something that I could formally study as a, as a career path or a profession. Many students specifically studying neurochemistry or neurobiology who were really interested in the way that these secondary compounds found in plant medicine, both entheogenic, psychedelic, um, as well as cannabis, interact with receptors in our brain and what they actually are doing at a physiological level. And that was so fascinating to me, especially as I began to understand that we have this system inside of us, this endocannabinoid receptor system that exists to allow us to feel effects from cannabis. And that also helps me make the switch from like, why are we demonizing this? We were hardwired. We are hardwired to feel something from it. So Emma was a latecomer to the game, but what better way to be introduced to cannabis than by your smarty pants peers at an Ivy League university? And if you think people go to such universities to do nothing but book learning and brain thinking, wait till you hear about Carl Sagan, Lester Grinspoon, or Francis Crick. You know, the guy who co-authored with James Watson the academic paper proposing the double helix structure of the DNA molecule. All of those brainiac nerds studied and highly enjoyed the effects of cannabis long before tie-dye shirts and Birkenstock sandals became a fashion staple among 18 to 25-year-olds. But ultimately, it was the hard science in that botanical roots of modern medicine course that inspired Emma to have a close look at the way Mother Nature has prepared her own medicine cabinet for us. Now, Emma mentions how we are hardwired to use cannabis, as evidenced by the endocannabinoid system found in the human body and most other mammals on the planet, as we discussed on previous episodes of the podcast, but she also uses the term entheogenic. Now, in the age of cannabis legalization and greater acceptance of plant medicine in general, we can expect to have new words enter our everyday language. In case entheogenic is a new one to you, here's what it is in a nutshell. So entheogenic substances are a class of substances that promote empathy. So they promote this opening of vulnerability in oneself and allow for greater connection and what can be best described as mysticism, not only towards um, fellow humans, but also towards animals and plants and the earth at large. There, there inspires this great kind of understanding of, oh, I'm a part of something. I'm part of this fabric um, of the whole. And it allows for deeper connection. And so substances like MDMA or psilocybin or LSD are entheogenic because they promote that um, connectivity. And cannabis also can fall under that. I'd say that there is... Um, there's greater variability of experience with cannabis, where if you do set that kind of intention and you are consuming consciously, then people can achieve this uh, this greater empathetic response towards people, especially in social context. I mean, if you do go 
farther in your dose. And if you to, if you do kind of overshoot your optimal therapeutic dose, it can do the opposite. So there is um, variability and, and chance there that is it's seemingly largely dose dependent, but um, cannabis can create that more entheogenic response. I'd say that psychedelic is a kind of larger umbrella term um, for substances, whereas entheogenic is like one of the pieces underneath the umbrella term. And so with psychedelics, oftentimes you when you hear that term, you think of like, oh, well, there's some like visuospatial distortion and there's um, other experiences that go along with that word where entheogenic um, is just a little a little piece of a psychedelic experience where you don't need to necessarily have a psychedelic experience with cannabis, but you can have an entheogenic experience with cannabis. So entheogens will give us feelings of empathy, mysticism, deeper connection to animals, plants, and the earth in general. So you won't necessarily have a psychedelic experience on entheogens, but you will likely have an entheogenic experience on psychedelics, cannabis included, if done properly. One way of doing that is to consume 11-hydroxy-THC, the main active metabolite of regular THC, which is formed in your liver once you have consumed an edible. Now, according to the New World Encyclopedia, entheogen is derived from ancient Greek. The adjective entheos translates to full of God, inspired, or possessed. And it is also the root of the English word enthusiasm. Genesthai means to come into being. So entheogens are substances that cause you to become inspired or to experience feelings of inspiration, often in a religious or spiritual manner, hence Emma's reference to mysticism. No wonder hippies and ravers are usually in a good mood. But getting back to academia, you would think after doing all this research on plant medicines and so many prominent professors and other academics proclaiming the benefits of cannabis and other entheogens over the years, that universities would be bastions of cannabis research, for example. Now, looking at the university landscape from that perspective, however, will leave you rather disappointed. But are things actually changing? Are institutes of higher education opening up to cannabis studies? Slowly but surely, yes, especially in regards to cannabis. Now, um, universities in Colorado, as well as universities in Michigan are developing out programs, not only for the kind of business management of what it takes to operate in the cannabis industry as a business, but also looking at the science behind cannabis. A lot of community colleges are also taking this on, which I think is interesting um, as more of a community-based effort in cities such as Portland, where we do have this legal industry, it is thriving, and consumer education is still at an all-time low. And so we know that consumers aren't gaining access to information that's allowing them to make smarter purchasing decisions. We saw this with the vape health crisis where people started developing these awful pulmonary health issues just because they didn't know what to look for when they were shopping for vape cartridges. And also manufacturers can easily claim kind of a a lack of information or that they didn't even have access to this kind of information when manufacturing and formulating products. And so it is really important that we do get this kind of education out there. I mean, there are universities on the psychedelic medicine side that are really championing that research in regards to MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin, uh, LSD, such as Johns Hopkins, and even Harvard now that's coming on and doing these clinical trials and finding some incredible results um, as to the efficacy of psychedelic medicine, specifically in the alleviation of anxiety and depressions in uh, cancer patients that have now um, gone through treatment and are in remission, but are still very afraid of death and, and have a lot of anxiety around that. Um, there are 
we're seeing quite a lot of efficacy when there are these therapists, therapy assisted psychedelic medicine sessions um, and people experience just amazing therapeutic value from that. So the landscape is slowly but surely changing and, and opening up to more scientific evidence, more science um, and more study around these plants. So some encouraging news, fingers crossed, this trend continues. Lord knows we could all use something to take our minds off the stress of modern day life, especially at this point in history where tensions are unbelievably high. Now, not making it any easier is the federal government's insistence on maintaining many of these entheogens and psychedelics on the list of Schedule One substances, which are described as having no medical value and a high potential for abuse. This list includes cannabis, peyote, mescaline, psilocybin, LSD, MDMA, and DMT. Now, it's quite interesting that this list of highly dangerous drugs is mostly comprised of substances that make you happy, feel empathy, and promote thought which says a lot about the people who want these things to remain illegal. Now, while people are fighting to get these substances descheduled or unlisted, Emma has been engaged in another battle of sorts in the cannabis space, specifically regarding nomenclature. It turns out what we today call indica or sativa might not actually be correct when talking about their effects. So indica and sativa, as most experts believe currently, and even this is up for debate, they are species of the cannabis plant or in taxonomical terms, the cannabis genus. So it is the level above the species. And we have three defined species, indica, sativa, ruderalis. When we define species from a taxonomical perspective, we are defining them based on the way in which they grow. And when Linnaeus, the father of modern taxonomy, classified cannabis sativa, he uh, noted or made note of its structure, how it grew. So it grew tall and lanky. It had a narrow leaf variety. It had really loose feet female flowers. At no point, as I tell my students, did he roll up a joint of cannabis sativa smoking and be like, oh my God, I'm so lifted right now. I'm crazy energized. Um, and then 30 years later, later, another taxonomist by the name of Lamarck, he traveled to India. He saw this cannabis plant that grew very differently from Linnaeus's classification of sativa. And he said, you know what, I'm going to classify a new species because it grows so different. It grows short and bushy. It has these dense female flowers. It's a broadleaf variety. Um, and because he was in India, he named it indica. Again, at no point did he roll up a doobie of, of cannabis indica and was like, oh, I'm so into couch right now. Um, over the years, the cannabis community has definitely adopted the indica and sativa nomenclature to describe consistent experience. And maybe at one point, cannabis indica flowers did make people feel largely sleepy while cannabis sativa flowers did make people feel largely energized because of terpene distribution. However, currently on the market, these two species have been so hybridized, they've been crossed together so many times that most everything on the current market is hybridized. It has a degree of hybridization. And so we cannot use these terms to predict consistent experience. Instead, it makes way more sense to look at the compounds that we are actually consuming that are binding to our receptors that are interacting with our physiology and promoting these different cascading pathways of not only therapeutic value, but also psychoactive mood of the experience. And so I really commend Leafly for making that change on such a large platform. It was a frustration that I had with them um, years ago when I was still in the dispensary environment, because it was just 
it was the antithesis of what we were trying to promote via that dispensary shop by experience shop by what you're looking to feel. And then we'll make that recommendation based on terpene profile as well as cannabinoid profile. Um, but I'm happy to see that they have come around and, and evolved to really adopt that modality. Cause I do think that it is the way that we move forward more ethically in this industry. It's the way that we more accurately predict for people what they're going to feel. And if we more accurately predict for people what they're going to feel, then they're better able to get to the experience that they want quicker. And it allows them to have a better experience with cannabis in general, rather than shopping for something blindly based on only the indica sativa distinction, and then going home, consuming it and having the complete opposite reaction of what they expected. I mean, I think that with taxonomy, it's really hard to predict experience or predict effects. I mean, even now the the cannabis landscape has changed so much since those original species classifications in 1753 and 1785. And so I agree with uh, taxonomists and classification specialists that we need some new nomenclature, especially as a lot of hemp companies are coming online and um, using cannabis sativa to describe hemp oil, which is very different from the the way in which we think about cannabis sativa in the cannabis industry and how most consumers think about cannabis sativa. And so including Afghanica and these other species um, distinctions, I think helps when trying to group the species based on the the morphology. However, again, if we want to really like dial down experience, we have to look at the compounds and compounds can change from batch to batch, grower to grower. I mean, even if you have uh, the same grower who's using the same methodology per se and growing cherry pie and they do one batch of it, well, it could have wildly different um, cannabinoid concentrations than the next batch for whatever reason, because the concentration level is dependent on environmental factors. The genetics do code for the dominance of the cannabinoids and the dominance of terpenes, but that specific concentration will change based on environmental factors from batch to batch. And then if you have a cherry pie that's grown from um, that's grown from one grower to another, I mean, that can also change wildly dependent on methodology. So that's all to say that it is incredibly important that we look at these lab results um, of each batch, that we look at the cannabinoid concentrations and the terpene concentrations of each batch of flower, even if it's the same strain, even if it's from the same grower, because environmental factors will play a role. And by looking at those concentrations of terpenes and cannabinoids, then we can have a better idea of how somebody may experience this. Again, it is a prediction, heavy emphasis on may because every single person is different and also people change. The ECS is in constant fluctuation. Our physiology is in constant fluctuation and cannabis as um, many entheogenic substances are, are very prone to set and setting. And so if you've had a fight with your partner that day, if you haven't had enough water, if you haven't consumed enough food, you can have a very different experience from your experience that you had even last night when your day was completely different. And so that's why it does take a lot of intention um, and uh, a continuous experimental attitude that really remains conscious of what you're consuming and how you're consuming it. 
So when we use terms like indica and sativa, it's to describe their structures and not their effects, which can ultimately be very misleading. As Emma said, you can have different reactions to the same strain by two different people, but you can also have two different reactions to the same strain but from a different batch by one person. And edibles are another category altogether. As mentioned earlier, 11-hydroxy-THC is a different beast than smoked THC. In fact, it has a more psychedelic effect than the smoked version, and it doesn't necessarily make a difference if you are using indica or sativa flower to make your edibles. Now, several boutique or craft cannabis brands have already started to move away from the indica-sativa binary and use names like Relax or Uplift for their product to describe the psychoactive mood that they're supposed to cause. Now, if you go to leafly.com to read about cannabis strains, you will notice that they have more or less stopped using indica or sativa to describe the effects of strains and instead have a classification system of colored symbols and various shapes, indicating the strength of the THC and CBD, but also the terpene profile, indicating what type of effects the plant chemotype will have. Now, while this may not be set in stone going forward with respect to taxonomy and labeling, it's a step in the right direction for people who want to know what they are putting in their bodies and what effect they can expect. So what shape will cannabis labeling take in the future? Will labels list the effects or the chemical makeup, including terpene profiles? I I think the latter, or I would at least like to see the latter of the the different terpene concentrations, cannabinoid concentrations, as well as what I call a chemotypic analysis. So an analysis of the chemotype to not only outline the therapeutic value of each of those compounds, but also the predicted um, experience in regards to mood. So if you might experience uh, intoxicating effects, if you might experience anxiety, if you might experience um, a relief from stress and anxiety, all of those things will or should be noted when we talk about experience. I think that we may never get rid of the indica sativa labeling, but my hope is that we do at least um, from an industry perspective, move on from relying on that to predict experience. I am not in the boat of um, knowledge shaming or or even telling people that they're wrong, because more often than not, that just puts up great defenses. But I think that as um, retail cannabis professionals, as cannabis guides and stewards helping people to adopt cannabis into their lifestyle, we can do a lot better about what we look towards to be able to predict experience for them. If people want to call that indica or sativa from a consumer standpoint, that's fine. But, um, but we can't rely on that from an industry perspective to predict experience. The situation can definitely seem confusing, especially for someone entirely unfamiliar with cannabis and the effects it can have, though it is ultimately up to the cannabis guides and stewards, as Emma states, to help consumers make the right choice in a dispensary framework. But there is a bit of a dark side to bud tending as well. Not to knock on bud tenders, they do of course provide an essential service, but not all bud tenders are as knowledgeable as they should or could be. Emma describes her experience in this regard. Yeah, I mean, when I entered the industry five years ago in Portland as a bud tender, there was no formalized education, no standardized education and training, specifically in regards to product knowledge and the fundamentals of cannabis science and cannabis and its purported effects, which to me is such a necessary element of training when entering into this kind of role because you are often interfacing with people who have questions that their doctors won't even answer. And so not only is it a, a liability from a business perspective, 
but also it's a disservice to these patients and consumers. And um, coming from my academic background, I was quite appalled that this didn't exist and that the information out there was more more often than not found on media and blog sites. And um, it was just it was really hard to assess the um, the like it was it was hard to assess how good the information was, where it was coming from, if it was actually verifiable. And so um, that's why I then focused so hard on education in the cannabis space. While I was at the dispensary that I was at, Pharma in Portland, I really championed the education program. I created the curriculum based on scientific literature and white papers that had been done to be able to um, train staff and and myself on cannabis and the fundamental elements of cannabis science and product knowledge so that we could make better predictions for consumers. And now um, that is still largely the focus of my mission with my consulting firm, Eminent Consulting. A, A major part of it is this online training for bud tenders, really for all industry professionals, but made in mind with the bud tender community, because I mean, like you said, I had a very, I have a very similar experience of it's quite varied out there um, around bud tender knowledge and who is knowledgeable, even in the same store, you could find bud tenders who like really know their stuff and you go on a different day maybe, and you'll get somebody else who doesn't really know anything at all. And that's really hard when consumers are looking to this person to like really single-handedly guide them in adopting cannabis um, into their lifestyle and reframing their own relationship with cannabis. And if bud tenders don't have that knowledge to effectively and safely guide people, then it can it can set up a lot of problems, not only for the industry itself, but also for um, consumption. Very encouraging to see this kind of initiative coming from the ground up among bud tenders, and this lack of scientific or medical preparation amongst them is definitely something that needs to be addressed, regardless of whether your dispensary is recreational or medical only. Now, training and preparation in this regard will only help validate the medical applications and legitimacy of cannabis as medicine. Unfortunately, in many dispensaries where the bottom line is the biggest motivating factor, the bud tender's role is limited to marketing and sales, but there are still loads of dispensary customers who would like reliable information about the effects of the cannabis products they are purchasing, and some even have valid conditions that require some basic understanding of medicine. So how can bud tenders or dispensary managers better prepare in this respect? I think that one, um, arm somebody and empower somebody in your staff who's interested to create an internal education program, to read up on different scientific literature that's coming out, to look at those more reputable and verifiable websites that are putting out information Um set up a program where you have vendors who come into your store and talk to staff or in this COVID era, have vendors kind of record um, a video that they could send into your staff around all the products that you carry. There are so many ways to do it for like zero cost really to the employer. And that's the biggest um, thing that I've heard from dispensary managers and owners around like, oh, well, we just don't have the time and we just don't have the money. And it's like, okay, well, that's not really an excuse because I am sure that you have somebody on your team who is looking for some kind of upward mobility, who is really interested in cannabis. That's why they got into this business. Empower them to take that role on, to take the charge in that and to educate your staff. It could even be as simple as five minutes in your pre-shift meeting. Talk about 
something new that's happened in the world of cannabis science. Talk about a new product that's come onto your shelf. Um, send out an, an email that has a rundown of kind of every product in your store that links back to websites. There are so many ways that you can incorporate education into your business model without major cost or effort on the part of the owner or even manager. So preparation and training don't have to be all that complicated or expensive even. Small steps can be taken immediately, but the key is to prepare and train on a regular basis. Cannabis is under constant study now, and new information seems to arise on the regular. So staying up to date is absolutely crucial if bud tenders are to serve patients with valid medical conditions. So as someone who has walked the walk, how does Emma envision the future of bud tending? I think that there will be eventually state mandated training that bud tenders do have to go through specifically the bud tending profession. I mean, we see a lot in established legal markets now. States require like a worker permit, like a food handler's permit, but it is a, a very general test with very broad like questions, 10 questions, easy to answer, can do it in like five minutes. I think that the the state will evolve to understand because of lobbying efforts, um, that it is very important to mandate a, a more robust education program for bud tenders. Um, and that may look like after completion, like um, maybe a letter after your name or something like that um, to really cement you in that role. I also think that the way that other states have gone about it, where there are assisting pharmacists on staff or some kind of like medical overview attached to the company so that if there are these more medical questions um, that patients have, patients can schedule an appointment with them. So it kind of like diverts it from the general, more commercial establishment. Um, but we have seen in especially states like Missouri and Oklahoma, where they're beginning to require some kind of education at the dispensary level. And that's really important, not only in HR training, security training, compliance training, but also in this idea of, as they call it, cannabis and its purported effects. So how might cannabis work for you? Um, and I think that eventually states will have to um, work with third-party vendors to be able to provide that training to business businesses and to employees um, and, and effectively mandate it if people do want to work in that role. The legal cannabis industry is still in its infancy in the United States and most of the world for that matter. So we can't expect to have everything in place after several decades of prohibition and anti-cannabis propaganda. We're still arguing over things like taxonomy and what effects different strains have, and there are so many more aspects of cannabis that have yet to be discovered, mostly thanks to federal prohibition at the research level. But if this is the direction that bud tending will indeed take, then it's a good sign that people are taking cannabis more seriously as a legitimate plant medicine, and that the stigma around it is quickly fading. Now, speaking of stigma, Emma describes her experience with it over the years. I'd say that Brown was quite a bubble in that a lot of people were very accepting of it. A lot of people um, used cannabis. I'd say that it was quite the norm. But where I'm originally from, Long Island, New York, definitely not the norm. Um, people who did use cannabis were seen as deadbeats. And my family, which is a very kind of traditional Italian family, um, when I told them that I was 
quitting my job at the oncology research group at Brown and packing up my car and moving across the country to move to Portland um, to work in cannabis and, and find different opportunities in plant medicine. They were not thrilled about that at all. Um, I, I would say that there is still quite a lot of stigma attached to cannabis, even to plant medicine. Um, at that time from my family and friends back home in New York, they were um, just really scared for me, I'd say is, is the biggest thing. And um, they, they were really afraid that I was going to get in trouble, that it was still something that was very illegal and bad. And people who worked in the industry were bad. And a lot of that kind of misconception around cannabis consumers specifically. Um, I'm happy to say that they, through kind of seeing my success and and through seeing how I didn't devolve into just like some some like degenerate in their minds, you know, um, they are they have really come to understand the incredible medicinal value of cannabis and and how this is an industry with really successful and motivated people. Um, and so that's that's been very nice to see. And I mean, yeah, the West Coast, there is like because they've had this culture here for so long, they've had this legacy of cannabis, not only consumption, but also cultivation and manufacturing um, for the black market, even throughout prohibition. Um, there is really not not a stigma that I've experienced here as a cannabis consumer. According to the Pew Research Center, public support for legal cannabis is now at an all time high at around 69 percent. No surprise about Emma's experience with stigma or lack thereof on the West Coast as Oregon, California, and Washington have had a relatively relaxed attitude towards it for decades now. But attitudes are changing on the East Coast as well. Massachusetts has gone fully recreational, as has Washington, D.C., and New Jersey is set to do the same later this year. Once New York finally comes to its senses and goes through with legalization, then the three biggest cities in the country will have fully phased out prohibition and with that, the annoying stigma surrounding it. So any advice to people interested in getting into the cannabis space? Educate yourself as much as possible. Now, um, compared to five years ago, there are so many more opportunities to gain valuable information around cannabis, take online courses, read up as much as you can, um, and and stay, stay with your finger on the pulse of of what's happening in the cannabis industry. I'd also say networking. Um, that word gets thrown around a ton, but it, it really helps. I mean, joining LinkedIn and connecting with people um, now. And again, in COVID era, it's hard to go to events because events aren't happening, but there are virtual events, there are virtual conferences. Engage with the community as much as possible. There will be people in the community who can help to get you to where you want to be. Um, the thing that I love about the cannabis industry, at least here in Oregon, is that it is so supportive. There are people who really want to see everyone succeed um, in creating an, an equitable and ethical industry. And so um, do, do as much work as you can, educate yourself, network with people, reach out to people. You never know where it might be able to go. So do your homework, kids, but also don't be afraid to get out there and talk to people. You'll be able to do more as part of a team than acting alone. So where can we find Emma if we want to reach out to her? Yes, find me on my company's website, which is eminentconsultingfirm.com. And you can also find me on Instagram as uh, Emma Chasen. 
And sadly, our time is up, so we say goodbye to our dear guest. Emma Chasen, thank you for the wonderful chat. Uh, it's always fun to uh, talk shop with uh, like-minded people. Stay safe out there in uh, Portland and uh, hope to cross paths with you again soon, uh, whether online or at some cannabis-related event in the future. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That was episode 47 of the Critical Grass podcast. Special thanks again to Emma Chasen for the wonderful insight on plant medicine research and bud tending. Portland is in some good hands. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, share, and rejoice with your fellow stoners and entheogen enthusiasts. I'm not even sure if that's an actual word. If you want to support the podcast monetarily, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash criticalgrass or donate directly via PayPal on our website. Operators are standing by. We'll be back very soon with a new episode, so don't go anywhere. My name, as always, is Bogdan. Stay lifted, my friends.